0: welcome to givers doers and thinkers today we chat with author bill kaufman about localism minor league baseball and how our two uncle sams make the thriving of civil society difficult and a lot of other things too let's go Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Bill Kaufman, a native of Batavia, New York, is the author of 11 books, among them one of the books that has meant more to me personally than almost any other. Dispatches from the Muck Dog Gazette, which won the 2003 National Sense of Place Award from writers and books and made Bill the mostly unacknowledged father of localism, at least to my mind. It should be acknowledged more. Uh, Well before anyone was going around saying to buy local or wearing t-shirts that said, I'm a localist, or talking about being a local Bill was elaborating what localism means, and we'll talk to him about that. Uh, He's written many other books as well, a couple of which I had the honor of editing when I was editor-in-chief at ISI Books. Uh, Those would be Look Homeward, America, which the American Library Association named one of the best books of 2006, and which won the Andrew Eisenman Writers Award from the University of Rochester. And a biography of Luther Martin, the drunken, anti-federalist, forgotten founder, which is a really fun book. He's also written a number of screenplays, including the one for the 2013 feature film Copperhead. And his writings have appeared in numerous publications, including The Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and The American Scholar. He is, an addition, a regular columnist for The American Conservative and for The Spectator USA, and a founding editor of Front Porch Republic. Bill has made a big deal of going back home to Batavia after working as a legislative assistant to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan some years ago. But as everyone knows, he really lives in Elba, which is at least three miles north of Batavia. So in actuality, Bill is a hypocrite. With that, how are you,
1: Bill? I'm, fi- I'm, f- I'm fine, Jeremy. It's a, it's a real honor to be here with you.
0: <laughs> Your hypocrisy, I'm sure, eats away at your soul every morning when you awaken your historic house in Elba, New York.
1: I'm, I'm a phony, yes. In fact, I'm, sit, I'm sitting here uh, with the computer hooked up and I'm staring at the wall. I feel like the guy in uh, Blair, at the end of a Blitter Witch project. So <laughs> I, hope, I hope this ends better than that. <laughs> I do too. I do too, believe me.
0: Well, let's just start there um, a little bit with your story of coming home because it leads naturally into the topic of, of localism. Um, and you write about this in Dispatches from the Muck Dog Gazette. And uh, you know, what happened? How, how, did, <laughs> how did you go from being in D.C. and um, to decide that you were going to make your home in, in Batavia slash Elba? Uh,
1: do you mind if I engage in some self-mythicization? Please, no. I, I expect you to engage in self Is embellishment permitted? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, well, I grew up in... Uh, Batavia, which is a small city, population uh, actually now is 14,000, has been dropping for quite a while in the western part of New York State uh, in one of the most agricultural and rural counties in our state, uh, which is to say a colony in the state of New York. Uh, And as you say, I worked for Senator Moynihan for uh, about two and a half years, uh, but I'd always been intensely homesick no matter where I was. Um, And I... uh, from there, anyway, I, I ended up working out in uh, Southern California. I was an editor with Reason magazine, but uh, increasingly, I had this sense that a, li- a life lived anywhere other than my my natal place would be uh, evanescent and meaningless. Uh, so I, ca- I came home uh, with my my wife Lucine, uh, which is Armenian for Darlene, I think, or. Maybe it's Lurleen, Jolene. <laughs> She's not here, so I can say this. Uh, <laughs> like John Mellencamp, you brought right, your
2: California. Right. I home. <laughs>
1: uh, anyway, she was, she was a native of Los Angelina. So I, I suggested to her, I said, you know, let, as a one-year experiment, let's let's move back to my hometown. And uh, it turns out that, that this was, that was 1988, I guess it was. So that this year is measured in these Old Testament Methuselah terms. So I figured we're... Up to about February 11th, right now, um, and yeah, so we uh, uh, we came back. Uh, she actually adapted very well. I mean, within uh, as you say, a few years. A few years after we were in town, we uh, she was coaching uh, high school tennis up here, about five miles north of town. So we moved into a house up here. She was she actually served two terms as uh, town supervisor and. Uh, Stepped down only because she thought if two terms were enough for George Washington, uh, is enough for her. <laughs> but you know, she well, hit. Uh, I think a lot of people of uh, Elba. Yeah. Yes, yeah. She was actually uh, she was once denounced in a letter to the editor uh, by this uh, this great cranky local farmer who wanted uh, this access road open uh, as the boss hog of El- of <laughs> County. And she said uh, she said you could at least call me the Daisy Duke of Genesee yeah. County.
2: <laughs> but,
1: uh, uh, anyway, she she I mean she adapted uh, supremely well. You know having. Growing up in a place, Southern California, where there's uh constant turnover, you know, your high school, uh, you know, 20 years after you graduate, there's probably almost no one, uh, none of the children of your classmates will be going to the school and, you know, and certainly when we lived in D.C. and, you know, apartment, I mean, we could have, apart, huge impersonal apartment complex, I mean, we could have been... Uh, You know, it could have been choking to death on your own vomit and the people in the next uh, (laughs) uh, apartment wouldn't care. Lovely Um, image. Thank you for that, by the way. Yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, yes, it's lunchtime, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, so we we got back here. We've been here for over 30 years and uh, it's – it's not all bliss, but, uh, I mean, obviously there are it's, – it's, it's much easier to idealize a place uh, when you're not living there. Uh, Lord Acton said that exile is the nursery of nationalism. Um, uh, but once you're back and, you know, you see the the warts and all, but uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know. It's, it's – uh, uh, Booker T. Washington said – Cast down your bucket where you are, you know, and it, does, it doesn't have to be your hometown. It's just, it doesn't even have to play, be the place where you live right now. I mean, it's, but, it, but at some point, at some point, you have to do that, I think, or else everything is just, uh, everything is just fleeting and, 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 and transitory. Uh, uh, and you never make a connection. Um, so for better or worse, we did, I guess. The,
0: it's one of the things you meditate on, if I recall correctly, in, in dispatches on MuckDog is that, and many other of uh, your writings as well, this, um, uh, how difficult we make it to have any sort of rich uh, community life, civil society, to use the wonky term uh, that, that we use here, uh, with, when there's so much mobility. And I remember you, you kind of opened my eyes to that, the sort of, that geographic mobility so much celebrated uh, in America is actually a problem. If it deserves to be celebrated, it also deserves to be thought of as a problem as well, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, great, it's a great undiagnosed malady, I think, of American life. And as, uh, as I think I wrote in the book, it's also uh, – it's even – it's embedded in, in the language. I mean, you consider a couple of colloquialisms. Uh, we say he'll go far of a promising young boy, you know, and this is uh, – uh, this is praise, thinking that success can be measured in the distance one has, has gone from home. Whereas if we say he ain't going nowhere, we're not praising him as, uh, for his, uh, his <laughs> steadfastness or his loyalty to his place. You're saying he's this sort of ambitionless sluggard a loser you know and that's that's really i think uh, that assumption is really embedded in, in 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 popular culture the sense that anyone who who stays home i suppose or goes, you know anyone who stays home is a loser anyone who goes home must have must have failed in the wider world you know and and uh, the entire rule almost the entire ruling class in this country consists of uh, extremely mobile if not if not rootless people you know who have uh, no particular loyalty to a place. I mean, their loyalty is maybe to their career or their class or whatever. Uh, and in my view, this has this has political. Uh, you probably, we probably don't want to get into politics too much, but this this has political consequences in a variety of ways. Um, I mean, one of which is I would I would argue is our uh, our foreign policy, uh, where you know if uh, <clears throat> uh, if you don't care about your uh, uh, your own backyard, the place where you live, then you see no problem with uh, you know sending our. Uh, sending our troops hither and yon to, uh, to cause mischief in all parts of the world. No,
0: that's right. How does it affect, I mean, we the, it's a trope uh, now two generations at least of scholarship uh, about the decline of American civil society, sort of the um, thinning out of our associational life. Um, what's the, I, I, I mean, obviously our mobility is, is, clearly one of the causes of that what what else would you put your finger on there like first of all what am i what are we talking about when we talk about civil society you know uh, in your mind and then and what's what are the things well you i mean think they're about- the, the sort of
1: they're the sort of voluntaristic uh, uh associations that your man uh, uh Tocqueville spoke of and that uh, that exist still i mean certainly they were i mean they were even stronger when i was a kid i mean just uh say the various. Uh, fr- uh, Community fraternal organizations, you know, Kiwanis, Rotary, this sort of thing that, uh, you know, one of my favorite writers, Sinclair Lewis, used to lampoon mercilessly. But these were uh, these were signs, I think, of a of a community's civic health, you know, Um, Little League, things like that. And they don't they don't have to be even organized in in, right, in that right. way. But, uh, you know... The uh, less organized, the better in many ways, uh, right? As well, part, uh, pardon me, I miss that. The less organized,
0: the better in many ways.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, as a, as a you know, congenital uh, anarchist, I agree. I mean, in fact, we, I'm involved with, uh, I'm involved with some, <clears throat> have been, I've, I've actually forsworn any kind of political involvement locally, even though I write about politics uh, quite a bit. I mean, my, my activities are pretty much all uh, cultural, uh, you know, it's, and so, yeah, some of these are through established organizations, the historical society or the landmark society, whatever. But there are also, uh, extremely unorganized groups that, that work. I mean, we, we honor, for instance, our, uh, our native son, uh writer, a novelist, John Gardner. We have a John Gardner society and it's been going on for like 25 years or so. We've never had, uh, we've never had any organizational meetings, um, we have no budget. Uh, we have no officers. <laughs> and yet every year we have a couple of events. You know, we, we put on a uh, – we've had a – we gather every, the, one of the last two Saturdays every October at uh, this very funky diner called the polka dot which has been around since the late 40s and it's very unselfconsciously funky it's not like there are hipsters there you know no, it is I not. Mean, i've been there and i can i can testify to its non-hipster character <laughs> <laughs> completely yeah but it was but it was garden who was one of the last american novelists who grew up on a farm and it's very interesting well he very, he's you know it's, it's funny if i had a, if i had to make a list of my hundred favorite novelists he would not be on it but but he's ours you know so uh, so so we do this and uh uh and we gather every year in, you know, of, of, of a late uh, October evening because one of his most famous novels is called October Light. Uh, and we uh, we read his words and we kind of conjure his spirit. And it's a, uh, a great gathering. And, uh, you know, we used to get like 20, 25 people, which, uh, you know, for – for potato, potato cultural, then would be like filling Madison square garden, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> and it's also great because, uh, uh, you know, usually there's still, there's a couple of guys like sitting at the counter who didn't come for this, you know, cause we do it like the last hour that the place is open. Um, and so they, uh, they're sort of with the, uh, with the grease, they're also inhaling culture, you know? And, uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a kind of totally unorganized <clears throat> event group that's, uh, uh, that I think is, uh, is an example of, uh, of healthy civil society. Uh, and if it can exist, even in as, what is often as dispirited a place, as <laughs> the place that I live, you know, which is, uh, you know, kind of part of the rust belt and we're not uh, doing well economically, blah, blah, blah. I can, it can exist anywhere. If people would, would simply take their, their, you know, take their eyes off, off the computer and, and refocus on, on the things nighest to their hearts and their lives.
0: Well, that's just it, right? So I was going to ask you, I mean, you know that John Gardner is one of yours, but I know because I've been present at many of your lectures where you will, you'll be in some random place like Delaware and start telling the audience about the greatest, uh, you know, literary figures and political figures, cultural figures in Delawarean history, and none of them know anything about them, right? (laughs) Except Joe Biden. (laughs)
2: And
0: so it's a real like how do you um we've been sucked into sort of an abstract life by our um uh, media our technological uh uh media and capabilities how do you how do you get back out of that uh you know it,
1: that is a, that is a, that is an excellent question um <laughs> i, I didn't know you want to know wanna, a real answer but that's, that's yeah. i mean when I, yeah when i, when I the interesting thing is when i give these talks um uh People nod in agreement. They all, there's always a couple. Like I've, I've spoken to a lot of schools over the colleges over the year, and there's always a few kids who come up afterwards. You just see, kind of see the light in their eye, you know, and they'll tell me about where they're from. And uh, I don't know what can we do, but <clears throat> I mean, I, I don't have any kind of preaching bone at all in me, but but evangelize in a way, you know, and uh, and in you know, hope that you know it'll spark or, uh, further an interest in where they're from or where they're going to end up, you know, or the, just the place where they are. I mean, it has to be, um, I mean, I really distrust like centralized authority and any kind of grand schemes or proposals. I mean, there's a sense in which the schools are <clears throat> complicit in what's happened because they've de-emphasized local history and, you know, and, uh, they're obsessed with not only standardized, you know, obviously the standardized uh, tests, but also, <clears throat> excuse me, um, also kind of nationalized curriculum. You know, all this "no child left behind" crap. <laughs> yeah, um, I it, think we it, should leave child beha- children behind. I think I think a lot of times they're better off being left behind. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: love it. Yeah. Well, that and that's probably not a winning political slogan, but it's well. But your point: is, if you don't love where you are, where you're from, or where you are, um, the, the, are the chances of civil society flourishing, associational life flourishing, are, are just about nil. They, they just yes. uh, they, there's almost no chance it will happen. And it seems almost there are powerful interests um, not to be not. This is not said in a conspiratorial way, but just this, their structures are such as to want to, to not want us to necessarily love where we are, but to be paying attention to things far away. They're produced. You know, far away, uh, um, by centralized sorts of you know.
1: I'm thinking Hollywood and things like this. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, a lot of the media. I mean, that was. I mean, and this is not. This cannot solely be blamed on. I mean, as much as I detest the the, the internet and such, this can't it can't solely be blamed on that. I mean, I remember years ago, just traveling around, and it's uh, it's sort of depressing to think that uh, a kid in Missoula and a kid in uh, Dorchester, Massachusetts are watching the same TV shows. You know, listening to the same music. Uh, you know, and so protesting the same things. I mean, I yeah, mean, yeah, exactly. It's protesting. It's, yeah, it's yeah, it's sure. It's yeah, sure. It's yeah it's yes, exactly. The, the nationalization of some, of, of some cause which is, I mean, it reminds me of remember years ago, this, uh, stupid kid fell down a well in Texas and, uh, this became a big, you know, baby, whatever the heck her name was. And, uh, became a big story and people were praying for the little child in the well. The, the kid was rescued, but, uh, you know the people who were all wound up in this. You know, watching CNN twenty four seven. You know, their next door neighbor, the old lady next door, was dying of loneliness. You know, <laughs> it's just, and, and they were, and they're, and they're blind to that. Uh, you know, Andrew, Andrew Lytle, used to say what? Take the, turn off the radio and take the fiddle down off the wall, and that that apply. You know, uh, that applies in a variety of contexts, and uh, yeah, charity
0: as well. You're right.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you are, you are Mr. You know, me or Mr. Lo- uh, local Philanthropy. Absolutely. Yeah, right. I mean, instead of writing a, uh, writing it out a check to some 501 C3 and taking your, uh, you know, taking your tax deduction and feeling good about yourself, uh, you know, get involved in something locally. Yeah. You can see, you can see the results there. You can actually, you can actually help people at a local level, you know, one on one. And uh, I, I'm sure this runs contrary to the whole all this Bill Gates stuff, but uh,
0: well, it's giving you've, giving, you've written, uh, written
1: about that brilliantly, and I highly recommend yeah. your the philanthropic book. Thank you.
0: Uh, I it's but it's true. I mean, one thing: um, the modern approach to uh, giving or helping others, let's put it this way, or trying to change the world, is there's no attention to what it's supposed to do to you. Uh, you know, and in the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, uh charitable giving is supposed to transform you more than anything else, your own heart. And but don't get involved more than writing a check. Uh, don't involve yourself in a really in a even a sacrificial way. Um, you know, you're you're going to miss out on that. The, the the riches that can accrue to that kind of
1: Yeah. Amen, brother.
0: Acting. Yeah. Well, let me cash a check on something I said earlier about the two Uncle Sam's. I was prefer- referring, of course. Obviously Uncle Sam, but also Sam Walton and Walmart to stand in for sort of <laughs> big business <in> this <laughs> role because I know you have thoughts on this in um, uh, you know we talk about civil society as and it's you know non-commercial non-governmental entities but you know it strikes me that um, the smaller the commercial enterprise the more it really is part of civil society uh, you know small local businesses are maybe indistinguishable almost at least, um, from small nonprofits and the way they may be, you know, involved in a positive way in the community and a way just the structure of a Walmart can't be. Oh. Um, I right about that?
1: Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they they are the lifeblood of the community. I mean, you could see it in, in, uh, in Batavia when, uh, you know, Walmart, Walmart cometh and are our last remaining department store cars, which I write about at some length in the, the Muck Dog Gazette book and other places closed. And so, you know, so business sort of uh, becomes imbalanced, uh, all the big boxes on the edge of town. And uh, some of the, I mean, some of the consequences, you know, um, I mean, my wife was uh, involved, involved with the United Way for years and uh, you know, uh, the big companies uh, were are far less, charitable you know they they always have to check with corporate you know before they make yeah. the donation yeah. So yeah this even filters yeah this even filters down to things like little league sponsorships you know where uh you know it used to be the team when i was you know playing little league teams were all sponsored by kiwanis or lions or whatever or the the local optometrist or the uh, you know the the corner deli um And as these places disappear, you know, Walmart's not sponsoring Little League teams, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, you have, I mean, I was involved for, I've been involved for many, many years, like most of my life, actually, with our local minor league baseball team. Uh, The same thing. I mean, we need to, you know, we we, to, to stay alive, we need to sell advertising on the outfield wall, you know, and, uh, again, the, the local shoe store, the local clothier and such. They were always the guys who bought those ads. Walmart, Kmart, Target, they do nothing. I mean, these are leeches who suck the life out of your community. And the thing is, I mean, there's a way in which which we're all complicit. I mean, if I have to buy computer paper, I have to go to one of those stores. I mean, no, one, no local place sells it. But nevertheless, in a lot of ways, more importantly than voting, you know, casting our vote, which is, you know, what, you go down and you're, you know, it's, it's, it's meaningless for the most part voting, but you can, but you can, but you vote with your, uh, you vote with your time and you vote with your money too. And those are, those are votes where you can, I mean, your vote can really make a difference. Um, you know, are you going to get to, are you going to get coffee at, uh, at the local shop or are you going to get it at, at Starbucks? Um, you know, you're going to buy seed at the uh, the local greenhouse, or you're going to go to Home Depot. I mean, these are these are the choices that we make every day, um, and yeah, they, they, they have
0: impact civil society. Right?
1: Yeah, and in their yeah. aggregate, they have <clears throat> they have enormous consequences. Um, and it's something that you know, you people ask, "Oh, what can I do?" Well, that's what you can do.
0: Well, hey, Bill, let's take a break. We'll see if we can get you to come out of your shell uh, and share, kind of really share your real opinions when we <laughs> when we come back. <laughs> Okay, a little time out here for some practicalities as we do during these podcast episodes. And today uh have Ian Bernhoft, uh, managing consultant of the writing and communications department here at American Philanthropic. How are you, Ian?
2: I'm doing well. How are you, Jeremy?
0: Good, good. Um, for the sake of everyone out there, Ian um, just joined us recently and he, he teaches English uh, at Providence College. So, um has a sort of proper credentials for talking to us about uh, writing and communications. Uh, Ian has written a number of articles for us uh, on Philanthropy Daily. You can find them on philanthropydaily.com. Just type in his name, Ian Bernhoft. Um, And some of those articles, there's a series you did on storytelling. And your main point was, well, I remember the main point of the first article anyway, which was that um, we should look at our communications, letters, even our organization's entire story, is sort of like a fairy tale that sort of has the structure of a fairy tale, right? Am I, am I remembering that?
2: Yes, exactly. that um, when you look at effective messaging basically across fields, be it in um, you know research proposals in biology, be it in investigative journalism, be it in academic writing, you have this sort of pattern of Establishing a kingdom, introducing a problem or a dragon, you know, sort of epistemic disruption, showing why it matters, the stakes are raised, the dragon is laying waste to the countryside, and then a resolution at the end. And that this is a sort of universal pattern, which is hardwired into us. And so we would do well to tap into it in all our messaging.
0: Yeah, Your point is we really remember fairy tales well. Like our brains are, as you say, hardwired to remember them.
2: Yes. Yeah. It's, people say it's sticky in a way that yeah. there are other present yeah, Stories
0: generally stories generally are stickier than facts, right?
2: Much stickier. In a good way. It's the, it's the right kind of story.
0: Uh, well, I don't know if I'm stepping on what I'm go- I was going to ask you because that wasn't planned. But um, Okay. We're getting to the point where uh, people are starting to think about their year-end letters, the year-end asks. Um, Give us three things from a, from a writer's perspective that people should be thinking about as they craft those.
2: Okay. So speaking of facts and the relative stickiness, um, I think the first thing that I would want somebody to remember as they were crafting their year end letter is that an effective end of year letter is not an update of everything you did in the past year. Um, and I see this sometimes in I'm sure you do as well, where it's like, you know, in twenty nineteen we were at 85 conferences and we, you know, advised 72 legislators and we met with 374, so on and so forth. And that's fine, there's a place for it, but <clears throat> of its own, that doesn't that doesn't do much um, to remind a donor why they should care or why they are a part of the organization. Um, I don't know if 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 you got these as well when you were growing up, but we always used to get Christmas letters, right? Where it would be like, this past year, you know, Lance became uh, the assistant regional manager and Gail took up kayaking and Todd was the go-to Christmas. (laughs) You you, you have to be a grinch to complain about those letters too much. It's a nice sort of like human thing, but it's also deeply uninspiring genre, right? Where it's like, well, the Joneses got through another year of mundane existence. You know, good for them. Um, so, <laughs> that's about the best we can all hope for. All right, so don't do that. So, so don't do that. What, don't what, do that.
0: What
2: and, well, let me, let me tack a writer onto that. The other thing I would say don't do is build it around a sort of, okay, this is a last ditch attempt to shake a few dollars out of people's pockets before tax season. You know, uh, that's important, but that's not going to differentiate you from any of the other organizations that are writing them in December. So instead, what I would say is the end of year is a golden opportunity to remind your supporters why your organization exists and also to affirm some sort of shared sense of purpose. So, you know, you can take, as you survey the year back and the year forward, you can take this sort of broader perspective and, and remind them, what is the problem that our organization exists to solve? Why is that important? Why does that matter? Um, how do we solve it? How are we making a difference? And then how are you part of that? And so overall, you know, again, and that follows that, that storytelling pattern we were just saying of establishing the problem, why it matters, what we're doing, what the payoff is. And so it's a is this opportunity to sort of in broader terms, reaffirm some sort of shared sense of higher purpose with your supporters and include them in that. Now, The third thing I would add then is what follows from point one and point two is that the details you include all those media appearances and scholarships and hot lunches, all that stuff needs to serve the story. You know, it needs to be folded in so far as it exemplifies what you're talking about, but be subsumed as evidence within this more compelling story. And you never want to lose sight of that, the bigger picture. And I think the same goes with the tax breaks, right? Like it's, it's good to remind people of how they're, how they're um, potentially saving money, right? To give organization, But only after you've shown why should they care about your, why do they care about your organization and why are they continuing to care about it in the first place?
0: That's great. It's, It's hard, people lose sight of that all the time. So, hey, appreciate the reminder. Thanks a lot, Ian.
2: It's my pleasure.
0: back with uh, author Bill Kaufman talking about localism civil society community associational life all those good things um, you you brought up the muck dogs I want to give you a chance to talk about that um, because it's an interesting it's another sort of I guess, commercial venture that's really sort of an anchor of civil society in, in Batavia over generations and it's gone this year of course and maybe gone forever but how does talk a little bit about how that has served to sort of as a glue in, in your town.
1: Oh yeah. Completely woven into the fabric of our town. We, uh, uh 1939, uh, what became the New York Penn league, which is uh, single a the lowest level or almost the lowest level of professional baseball. Uh, the league was founded, uh, in a meeting here in Batavia, um, six teams it's endured. It's, uh, right now the oldest continuously operating single a league in the, uh, yeah in baseball though that may soon be ending um and so for what uh, uh 80, 80 years 81 years um there've been be- there's been baseball here every summer and it's uh i grew up like a block from the park uh, i mean my dad was like a bat boy ball shagger. i i did some of that stuff um, and i just been in the stands and it's uh <clears throat> it's given it's helped to give our town an identity. It's it's a it's a shared experience. Uh, it cuts it co- cuts completely across class lines. I mean, small towns, small cities are much less class divided than, than larger places, anyway. But uh, you know, there are no there are no there are no social distinctions uh, in the bleachers. And it's uh, well, you know, I, I love baseball. I love watching the games. You've had a lot of great players over the years. I mean, to me. What's really beautiful about it is the people in the stands, and uh, and it's a it's a it's a it's a multi generational thing, and just you know the the, uh, you know when I when I'm there I not to not to sound all mystical or anything but uh, you know Chesterton spoke of the democracy of the dead, and I I like feel the presence of the people who, since I was a kid, have been there. And, and then they're gone you know but and new people come and its just it just gives you a sense of of continuity um and that, that people in in this little town have shared this now for for four score years you know um and yeah it's uh, I mean Jeremy you you've, you've been the games uh, you've written a great book on baseball so you you, you know what this kind of stuff means I,
0: I, I've sat in the stands with you and your friends and it, it, you're exactly right And um, I remember joking with you because, like, in the stands and, like, the 12 people that you always sit with, whatever the right number is, there's, like, a former Jeopardy! champion. There's the editor of the local paper. There's a guy who works at the local museum and, and, like, has his hobby of going to vice presidential grave sites. I mean, all really interesting people, very smart, different walks of life. And, yeah, what you said just now about a sense of continuity, I mean, that's what's, you know, what's celebrated – is disruption, right? If I if I had a dime every time I heard the word disruption every day in my work life, you know, I would I would be I'd be rich. Uh, but it's that's what's celebrated: innovation, disruption. But we, we actually right, we meet continuity <laughs> as human beings. I mean, it's really important to our sense of well being. Disruption, and innovation is clearly related to the sort of sense of hyper anxiety that we're suffering through right now.
1: I think so. <clears throat> absolutely. And we're 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 suffering a little of that right now because we are in uh, severe danger of uh, losing the team. I mean the uh, the league the league expanded Willy nilly, about 20-30 years ago, into uh, larger cities, and so they've always wanted. Even though we're the birthplace of the league, they've always wanted us out. You know, it's uh, it's like we're the are the smallest team in the league. I, I think we're now the smallest team in professional, smallest city in professional baseball. You know, it's unfashionable. Um, and but we've but we were always a community owned team, kind of on the Green Bay Packer model. Which professional sports hate community teams. <laughs> the only ones that exist were were somehow grandfathered in. I mean, you, you can never have that again. Um, and through a series of unfortunate events, as the children's book uh, title goes, uh, we uh, we lost that community ownership a year ago. And uh, and anyway, and now we're 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 getting hammered by the uh, the majors, which uh, which want to wipe out forty uh, some minor league teams, the lowest level, of the minors, and uh, which is just. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Do we, do we say, forgive them, Lord, for they do not know what they do. (laughs) I I don't know. know, You know, I'd really, I'd I'd rather see these bastards strung up. I guess, I I guess guess I'm not very (laughs) uh, (laughs) Christ-like.
0: A few among us are. Um, (laughs) Right. right. I mean, I've thought of if if major league baseball did really care about community life, if they even cared just about growing the sport, they had any sort of long-term vision, they certainly wouldn't be in the business of closing down professional baseball and dozens of communities across the the country a couple of things right right a couple of things i think are really just i want to touch on before we move on about what makes for a, a good civil society institution and, uh, giving a sense of continuity that's really good class like including if it does, is inclusive of people from different classes and it's really important like if i'm like building a checklist you know like that beyond there and then the multi-generational like these are uh, things we struggle with, right? Any, we, we have fewer institutions that are multi-generational now, it seems like than ever. And-
1: yeah, I, I agree. And I, uh, I think with, with the class thing, I think of the, uh, uh, our local historical society, which oversees the museum and I was on the board for many years. Um, I, it would always, it always struck me, you know, it, uh, in, and actually our, our former congressman, Barbara Connable was a great guy. He used to talk about this. Um, in larger cities, bigger places, people relate to each other unidimensionally, um, and uh, which which he hated. Um, in a small place, um, like if you're on the board of the store, you because you see people in a variety of aspects, you relate to them like multidimensionally, like they're they're full people. Um, I think about like the the side, I remember we had uh, I saw remember two mem- two members. Um, one was this actually uh one was a very out gay person um one was a uh, leader of the uh, local assembly of god church um and be- now if they if they lived in i don't know some if they lived on the internet let's say which is where so many people live that that's the only way they would have related to each other they would have they would have hated each other without knowing each other but because they knew each other, because they saw each other around town, because they were cooperating in the, in like the, the labor, this labor of love of neighbors, they were friends. They worked together. You know, there was no, there was no enmity, no friction. Um, And I think that's uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that lack of lack of class distinctions and lack of other distinctions on, on, you know, in civil society, groups is, is critical. And that's why I think it, scale is always important because you get to too big a scale, um, you know, and you, you got, you're going to get all people from professional classes um, and which, uh, and, uh, you know, they're going to be circumspect or they're going to come in with a set of prejudices, whatever, and it's not going to work. Um, I, mean that, I mean, I suppose that's why I'm just, politically, why I'm sort of a radical decentralist. I, I don't see how things can work at a bigger level.
0: Well, they certainly, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, the bigger you get, the less able you are to promote a sort of multidimensional relationality that is um, uh, the only way we keep from each other's throats. I mean, that was the next question I was going to ask you is like, you know, what the heck is happening right now? <laughs> Why are we at each other's throats so distrustful, so suspicious of our fellow Americans? I mean, is that just the logical results of of not having, not engaging with each other chiefly through uh, civil society and, and, and our associational life, but abstractly through the internet.
1: I, 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 I mean, I, you know, obviously I have a party pre in this uh, debate, but yeah, I, I think that's a lot of it. And, you know, and also obviously the uh, lockdown and the, uh, the uncertainties and the unease that's introduced uh, have contributed to that. Um, and, and the, uh, uh, you know, then, and, and Schooling, actually, it is it is it is true that uh, this sort of centralized curriculum, uh, I think, has encouraged young people to uh, to despise their ancestors. Um, and I say that not as someone who thinks we should, you know, be reading Parson Weems. I mean, no one. There are very few people who detest the American Empire as deeply as I do. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but I. But I have great respect for the uh, people who built this country. I mean, the uh, the heroes and the knaves alike. I don't know. It's 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 kind of weird. Like if I think of mid nineteenth century, uh, they all seem a part of me. You know. I mean, doesn't matter if it's Frederick Douglass or Robert E. Lee. You know, or, or a runaway slave or uh, uh, Henry Timrod, the Southern poet. I mean, they're, they're, they they all had a a role in creating this country, you know? Um, And I just, I don't know if that kind of uh, feeling is inculcated in children anymore. You know, it's a stupid Manichaean thing, you know, uh, where there's the the good guys and the bad guys.
0: (laughs) Right, there's a a sort of dehistoricization, to coin a terrible word. It sounds like you you know these people as humans. Because you are have sort of deeply engaged with them and their work and in, in history. Um, it, yeah. You know them like the people you were talking about on the library board knew each other, sort of a, uh, warts and all, not that you approve of everything about them, obviously, but um, yeah, if you dehistoricize things, you get Manichaean sort of good and bad um, uh, sort of view of society and history. And why wouldn't you despise somebody who's
1: obviously just a villain right? Right. Absolutely. And so how do you, how do we pull, how do we pull back from that? Yeah. Um, without, without, I'd say radically reforming education <laughs> without, uh, uh, radically de-emphasizing, uh, social media and communication via the internet without, without returning a lot of our institutions to, uh, the human scale. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have big plan. I mean, I think you cannot you, uh, you try to brighten the corner where you are and, uh, if enough people do that, uh, you get positive change, I guess.
0: Yeah, the, um, I have a question from our producer behind the boards, uh, which using modern media, tell her to has, tell her to come out from behind the boards and ask her, it herself. Her, her sound isn't good enough to come out from behind the boards. I would like her to do that, but you know she's asking what about? Here's her question for you. This is Katie Janis, our producer. What about the moral What about the hypermoral younger generation attempting to live in a smaller community with folks they disagree with? seems impossible because if they find out you disagree on one point, they quickly
1: condemn. And that's a, that's a, a very good question, Katie. I was, I was actually thinking about that the other day because there are uh, – I know a couple of uh, folks who are would probably be considered hypermoral, or, I mean, there's certainly uh, – their position on the issues of the day is easy to predict. Um, and uh, they know that I disagree with them on some of these things. And I don't know. We've never – I've never had any conflict with them. Um, and I think that's, I think that's because we, we know each other. I mean, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a bad, there's a knowledge of a, ba- a background, you know, we, we, we kind of know the backstory of each other. Um, and there's a level of, of trust and respect. Um, I, if, if you don't have that back story, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> uh, fireworks go off, I guess, um, and I, I don't know, I mean, I guess we just, we just need to take the time to, to get to know one, one another and they kind of diffuse that kind of thing. I, but yeah, I mean, I ser- certainly, I read about uh, people who won't talk to relatives or something because they vote the wrong way. And I, I think that's insane. <laughs> you know?
0: Well, that's, I mean, I guess one of the common objections Bill, is the, the line of thinking is like, oh, you all this concern for localism, uh, for a community. Um, uh, integrity or um, self uh, uh, direction isn't that all just a cover for racism and intolerance? And it, isn't it? Wasn't it necessary to break through that in order to reach a sort of greater level of uh, racial equality in America? And therefore, isn't it necessary to continue to breaking through all that, uh, not allowing it to to you know, sort of reform if we really want to have a just society? What, what do you say when you get that objection? Well, I
1: mean, I guess I would, I would say that I mean. Historically, uh, certainly in the first half of the 19th century, uh, you know, it was the people who wanted to return power to the localities who were the—I uh, mean, those were the those were the abolitionists; those were the people who wanted to emancipate the slaves through things like uh, personal liberty laws, you know, which defied the centralized the centralized Fugitive Slave Act. Um, I mean, I think that uh, I think that. Politically, a kind of decentralism. I mean, it can be used both ways. Obviously, you know, some southern states uh, in the 20th century, uh, uh, protective of unjust systems. Uh, But I don't know if you don't decide this idea that there's some sort of uh, some sort of expert and uh, disinterested class of wise men uh, who who live remotely and who should have the power to dictate uh, uh, events and affairs in your community I mean I just I don't see it I mean there to me what these people do are uh, you know there's never been a there's never been a local government that has sacrificed hundreds of thousands of Americans in foreign wars you know um, I mean that those really grotesque uh, acts uh, that the U.S. government has committed, uh, or the Indian Wars, the, the you know genocidal campaigning against the Indians in the nineteenth century. I mean, these were these were acts of the of the central government. You know, they weren't they weren't done by uh, you know a bunch of local yokels.
0: Here's a kind of naivete in the objection that um, uh, that those who will do the uh, watching and breaking down and ruling of the local community from afar are themselves. As you say like a council of wise people who are right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean I they're know, just they they're. they're at heart. Yeah.
1: They're, they're placeless people in the uh, professional class, you know, who've uh, been wrong time and again. And
0: Let's, um, I'm going to switch gears on you. I want to ask I want to give you a chance to, to talk to this because no one can answer this question other than you. Because uh, no
1: one, no, seriously, no one. It's can, not, it's, it's not going to be too personal, <laughs> is it, Jeremy? <laughs> Tell us about your. I don't, don't want to reveal anything about myself.
0: <laughs> no, really. I don't know anybody who knows the history of America, Certainly, the history of its literature better than you. So, I want to give you, I want to draw you out on this. Like, who who are the great American writers when it comes to really understanding the dynamics, possibilities of community, place, civil society? Can you give us a few? Like, the people should, if they're interested in this, they should look up and get to know.
1: Well, I think uh, I, I think you and I would put Wendell Berry, the Kentucky poet novelist farmer, uh, at the top of the list, uh, his poetry. And I would write as a, as a, I mean, he's written in any number of great, uh, novels about the fictional town he calls Port William. Uh, the book I would write, rec- I, my favorite of those is Jabra Crow about a uh, town barber. Um, great uh, I've
0: ever written about a barber. I mean, I think we can, we can definitely say that's the case. Are there other barber novels?
1: I, that's a good quote- Well, my, my my friend Henry Clune is a very good Rochester novelist. Once had a, a novel in which the uh, local barber was a peeping tom. That's, <laughs> but, but I think I think J. Rick Crow is probably better than than that book. Um, books about I, I'll, I'll I'll give you one. I'll give you a, a writer really out of left field. Who I think is like one of the most misunderstood writers in American history is uh, Sinclair Lewis who was uh, considered the great writer of what they call the revolt against the village. Um, He wrote in the teens, twenties, thirties, supposedly mocking small towns, mocking the, the, the provincial Minnesota in which he grew up. But, uh, but in fact, Lewis was a great Minnesota patriot and localist, even in his actions, you know, memorizing the, memorizing the uh, counties and county, all 87 counties and county seats in Minnesota, only buying artwork from Minnesota, uh, uh, painters, uh, speak, telling, uh, speaking to like ladies, uh, groups and saying that he wanted to, uh, to make Duluth the new Athens. Um, and everyone thought he was joking, but, uh, in the manner of, uh, what is it? Uh, Johnny Rotten's great line, uh, we mean it, man. I mean, he, uh, he meant it. And so the book there I would recommend is Babbitt, which is often seen as, oh, a satire of these uh, moronic uh, small-town businessmen. Uh, but in fact, Lewis's target is is conformity and standardization and the idea that, that the people in Zenith are aping the bigger cities. In um, Lewis's view, and this go, work goes through all his works, uh, Zenith and the small towns of America uh, – would reach their potential if, if they were true to themselves and if they, they stopped looking outward for, for, for confirmation. Um, and to me, this is, I mean, this is one of the things about, uh, this is one of the, this is one of the problems of the, the provinces is that a lot of times the people who are in control of say cultural life and in institutions, um, uh, they, they, they believe that, uh, you know, the things in their own backyard are sort of second rate. um, and they take their cues from, I don't know, the New Yorker or yeah, something yeah. like that. You know, they take their cues from people who despise them and people who, you know, I mean, New York, New York, you know, like New York City. I mean, there is more, there's more diversity of of uh, of opinion uh, uh, and thought in the. Topeka, Kansas branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1905, than there is in the entire <laughs> performance artist community in Manhattan and Brooklyn today. You know, I mean, these people these people are conf- these people are the worst kinds of conformists. You know, who looks to them? They're not interesting. Fifty years hence, is anyone gonna is anyone gonna watch or, or read or listen to that stuff? No. Um. You know, no. I mean, the uh, uh, that's why we need. I mean, we need uh, 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 writers and painters and, and 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 musicians, poets to spring up uh, from the provinces, and they don't have to be these uh, you know rural pastoralists or anything like that. But uh, but they need to to to, to tell us. Uh, how they see their places, you know, through their eyes, through their experiences. That's what we need. I mean, that's that. That's where any kind of regeneration, revivification of our the, the moribund American literary and art scene is going to come from. It's not going. To, it's not going to come from the, you know, the New Yorker.
0: Well, let me ask. Okay, <laughs> that's wonderful. One last question before we let you go, Bill. What? So, where do you see? Do you see any of those green shoots? Today, I mean, do you uh, give us a little bit of hope amid the darkness?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, gosh, look at uh, look at say the c- community supported agriculture. You know, uh, uh, farmers markets, uh, organic farms, uh, the uh, uh, cra- craft brewing, um, the uh, the renewed emphasis in some, p- some quarters on on craftsmanship, things like carpentry and such. Um, and, uh, I mean, there are, and I know a number of people around the the country who are, who are writing about, who are interested, who are living locally centered lives. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously if you look at political strength, we're completely unrepresented politically. I mean, both, both of the parties, the two wings of the bird of prey, as Gore Vidal said, I mean, they're both, they both despise us. Um, but you know, the, the, what's left of the heart and soul of this country we're it, you know, and these are, and these, I think, are examples. These are things that people respond favorably to, you know. I mean, people, people prefer farm markets to, uh, I don't know, buying something on Amazon, I think. I mean, I think it, obviously, many more people buy things on Amazon, but it makes people feel better. It, it, it gives people a sense of connection to the place where they live, you know, um, and, and and we need that. And so, yeah, I see, uh, I mean, I'm you know, I'm just, I'm kind of innately a uh, hopeful guy, but uh Yeah. I, I, I see a lot of uh, a lot of reason for hope, and besides, despair is a sin, right? And it's no fun. Yeah. So
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> not only is it sin, <laughs> it's also no fun. Um, right. That's, that's really more important, thing. right? Yeah, uh, Bill. Thanks for your time. Uh, you can find Bill. Uh, he's not much online, but uh, he does have a website: Bill
1: it hasn't been updated for several years. But
0: okay, my well, I remember when it came no. out. It
1: was great. Well, no, well, no, I, well, well but, you, but you know what? I really haven't done anything for the last several years. So visit it. Visit it. Buy the books, all right?
0: Visit it, buy the books. Don't buy them from Amazon. Buy them from your local bookshop. Right. You can enter directly from
1: the- Although I do think the movie, the, the film I wrote that was made, Copperhead, I, I'm told, is on Amazon Prime. Oh, like if you're a, a member of that, you can see it for free. So uh, Wonderful. You know.
0: Wonderful film. I, I totally recommend it to anybody. Uh, who's listening? Yeah, check out Copperhead for sure. Um, and yeah, Bill's writes for American Conservative and Spectator USA all the time. Um, thanks so much for being with us, Bill. Appreciate it.
1: I I, I enjoy it, Jeremy. Thank you very much.